0: By 2025, you know, half of the world is going to be living in a water-stressed environment. Some places are experiencing water stress right now. They may be seasonal. So if we look at South Africa, in the last four years, they've had two events where they were potentially going to run out of their freshwater resources. And so in times of water stress need, maybe monsoon season's a little bit low, or there's been a couple of years of bad monsoon seasons, these resources might be able to plug that gap.
1: By 2025, over half the world's population will live in water-stressed areas. The freshwater resources we rely on are at risk of depletion due to climate change and over-exploitation. But a discovery off the coast of the eastern United States might give us hope that there are more freshwater resources out there, if we dig deep enough. Brandon Dugan, is the Associate Department Head and Baker Hughes Chair in the Department of Geophysics at the Colorado School of Mines. He's also a recipient of the 2018 Asahiko Tyra International Scientific Ocean Drilling Research Prize. And he joins us today from Golden, Colorado. Welcome to What About Water, Brandon. Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, great to have you. And, um, you know, I probably should have known about this uh, aquifer, you know, being a groundwater person myself and one who really, you know, advocates for really exploring and understanding our our groundwater resources. But, you know, I think I missed this. So please tell us about this massive aquifer of freshwater under the Atlantic. I don't, I don't necessarily
0: think you missed anything. You know, logically speaking, most of us would not go look Beneath the ocean to find freshwater, and actually the original discovery of this freshwater resource that we've since learned is is in an aquifer came as an accident. It was actually the U.S. Geological Survey doing an assessment of energy resources along the Atlantic margin in the 1970s, and as they were bringing cores and and samples up onto the ship, they realized that some of these samples that they were bringing up from Beneath the seafloor had fresh water in them off New Jersey or off Long Island, about, you know, 50 to 80 kilometers offshore. When they drilled down about 50, 60, 70 meters, they found fresh water, one part per thousand salinity and started thinking about, well, how did this water get in place? Why is it here? And so to go back to your original question, how did we, you know, how did we miss this? How did it get there? Well, nobody thought it was there. And it was an accidental discovery. Like, how did it get there? In the 1980s, about seven or eight years after the original observations, the USGS put together some groundwater models looking at how high topography in the Appalachian Mountains and lowered sea levels and geological past may have created the driving force to flush these waters out very, very far. And they put together some conceptual models that were numerically based that said, these are the physics that could define how this system works, jump forward about another decade or so. and Mark Persone, a colleague of mine at New Mexico Tech, and I started thinking about, well, how could those driving forces have changed over time, and especially looking at high latitudes? And we started thinking about the last glaciation, or the last glacial maximum, where you had these big ice sheets advancing out to Long Island, to Cape Cod, and they create this big driving force with water at their, their base, and they can drive that water far offshore, And so now we've started to look at the role of of both topography on land and sea level changing, but also how ice sheets advance and retreat and how that might actually create a driving force. And so we've started to put all these together um, with initial observations from the 1970s and better
1: understanding of
0: computational techniques to understand these, to predict what we think they look like.
1: So, Brandon, let's fast forward to 2019. Another major discovery about this aquifer happened. What was that?
0: So, Kerry Key, Rob Evans, Chloe Gustafson, some of my colleagues went out and actually started using electrical surveys in the ocean to try to figure out what layers the freshwater is in offshore and how that connects back to onshore. Before we just had point measurements, so we had wells and we said, "Oh, there's some freshwater over here." And then we had a well that was 100 kilometers away and we said, "There's some freshwater over here," and we used what we knew knew about hydrological principles and geological principles to understand how they might be connected and how they might be related. And so we're continually adding to the technology to understand these systems better. So a big question is, are these things recharging in on human time scales? They're actively recharging. Is the water mm. young? Is it from a rain event that happened six months ago uh, or three weeks ago? Or is it what I would call paleo groundwater, which is from the last glacial maxim, maybe, maybe 20,000 years ago, maybe even older, maybe 70,000 years ago?
1: So, Brandon, just how big are we talking about here? Are we talking about something that's the size of Connecticut or the size of New England or something like the High Plains or the Ogallala Aquifer, which stretches across from south to north across the Midwest?
0: If, you know, if I had to give you the best estimate, it's probably on the order of the size of New York State or something like that. But it's distributed over a pretty long north to south corridor, so it extends all the way from Maine Maine, down to New Jersey. And you can envision v- it as sort of a thin slab of freshwater that hugs along the coast and goes up from New Jersey all the way up to Maine. But if we reshaped it, it'd probably be about the size of, of New York or something on that order, so. That's,
1: that's huge.
0: So that's about 100 years of groundwater use for the entire world, if you think about it. Just if we look at groundwater here. So it's a pretty big resource. On the US East Coast margin from New Jersey up to Maine we estimate that there could be on the order of you know, 1,300 cubic kilometers of fresh water stored out there. Um, that's about 10 years worth of all the groundwater that the U.S. would use. Or if you want to look more close, that's about 800 years worth of water that New York City could use. And so while it might not be renewable in the sense of it's actively recharging today, we still have hundreds of years of resource out there. and We better start thinking about how to use this because it is
1: salinating today as sea levels go up. So, Brandon, is this the only offshore freshwater aquifer of its kind in the world? There is an offshore groundwater
0: resource just south of South Africa that was discovered during oil and gas drilling in the late 1990s, early 2000s. As you mentioned, by 2025, you know, half of the world is going to be living in a water-stressed environment. Some places are experiencing water stress right now. They may be seasonal. So, if we look at South Africa in the last four years, they've had two events where they were potentially going to run out of their freshwater resources. And so in times of water stress need, maybe monsoon season's a little bit low, or there's been a couple of years of bad monsoon seasons, these resources might be able to plug that gap in times of need, whether it be seasonal variation, multi-year variation, or longer term climatic changes. But you know, to do this responsibly and sustainably, we really need to understand the dynamics and understand which systems are actively recharging. So they could be used over and over again and which ones are are locked and old water that might provide help in times of need, but they're not gonna be replenishing over the timescales that, that humans would need.
1: Right. You know, I think it's very cool that we've had this discovery. We do spend a lot of time around the world, not just the United States, but really, you know, global society, going out there and exploring for oil. And, you know, less so less so for, for water, partly because it hasn't really had the value or maybe hasn't had the value until now. So, I find this really exciting. And we use the comparison of like an acre foot of oil is worth like $800,000 and an acre foot of water at the highest is like, you know, a $1,000, you know, in the Southwest in the drought. So, it could be a while. But, you know, things are changing so fast right, with water availability that that who knows? And who knows what the government will want to put into it as well?
0: I talk to my students all the time, as as I'm sure you talk to students, and I sort of ask them how much a gallon of gas costs every time I first have them in class. Then I ask them how much a gallon of water out of the tap costs, and they have no idea because it's essentially free, right? And so this sort of economics problem we use as a motivator um, but we're seeing lots of people who, who grew up in this environment of seeing water stress and, and limited water resources and the droughts and the wildfires that we're having. So my hope is that in the coming years, we're going to have more activism towards this, just like I've seen in my life with, with climate change. Oh um, yeah. you know It wasn't really a term when I was an undergraduate. Now I'm getting 18, 19 and 20 year olds who are passionate about working on this problem. And I think, you know, I hope yep. we follow suit.
1: No, I, I agree. And I mean, I've said multiple times and in different ways, you know, water is the new carbon, Water's next. We need to be doing this kind of exploration. We need to be doing this kind of accounting. So you're starting to do some more work on it, some more exploration. But there's, uh, you know, there's a wrench here and there's talk of putting a big uh, offshore wind farm. And this exact area, by the way, you know, I come from Rhode Island, I've seen the wind farms off of Block Island, mm-hmm. and they're quite impressive. Is there is there a potential of like, you know, poking holes in these submarine aquifers and, and, you know, that salt water would pour in? Or that the fresh water would pour out?
0: There's definitely a general risk there. Anytime we perturb a system, there's a risk that we could perturb it in a negative way. Whether it's scientific drilling, drilling for a resource. I think actually when it looks at the wind farms, which I'm also really excited about, I think it's actually mutually beneficial and almost synergistic that they're in the same locations. And it should not be problematic as long as we go in with a good operating plan. Um, These water resources, we think they're sort of 50 meters deep down to 350 meters deep or something like that. The anchors for these wind farms should all be in the upper sort of 30 meters, maybe, maybe 35 meters or 25 meters. So they should be above it. Uh, That said, everybody should do their due diligence and their their surveying and working together to make sure that they don't accidentally puncture a shallow lens or something like that. The reason that I think it's synergistic between them is in order to install a wind farm, they have to do a bunch of seafloor imaging, sub-seafloor imaging to look at the strength of the materials to to mount the pilings for the the wind farms. That can help us. That that same data can be used to look at the local freshwater system to make sure that where every windmills put that we're in a, in a good location. Also, if we're thinking about moving this water from the shelf on the land where somebody can use it, that takes energy. Well, what are wind farms providing? They're providing energy. And so it's a local renewable source of energy that's sort of non-traditional, at least in current times, producing a non-traditional freshwater resource in the same location. So to me, it seems like it could be mutual beneficial companies, industries, people that are looking at sustainability, greening the system, I think should be really excited about this. And I think the two industries, sort of the water industry, if you want to call it that, and the wind farm industry, if you want to call that, should work together to minimize their costs and maximize their return on the energy or water that they're providing to communities.
1: Brandon, this season on What About Water, we're talking a lot about innovation and technology. Tell us about this crazy piece of drilling equipment that you're using. Like, this isn't something that I could I could pick up at, at Home Depot.
0: Definitely not something you could pick up at, at Home Depot. So um, it's much more akin to what people view of as like an oil and gas drilling rig. So it looks a lot like that. It's got a big derrick out there, and it's got a, a drill bit that goes down and helps us drill through the sediment that's connected to, to pipe back up on the rig floor. The drill bit itself is about 33 centimeters in diameter. In the middle of it, it has a hole that's about six centimeters wide. So as we're drilling around, it's capturing a six centimeter diameter core in the middle that's about 10 meters long. Once we drill down 10 meters, they send a tool down, a wire line, it grabs onto the top of it, it pulls it back up to the top of the rig floor so we can look at it as the as scientist, and then it drills down another 10 meters, again, creating this hole in the middle that we're collecting in its intact and pristine section, and we can do that. Um, drilling from the seafloor down to many hundreds of meters, 600 meters, 700 meters, and 800 meters. So we have the technology available to drill through this 50 meter to 350 meter interval where we think a lot of this freshwater exists.
1: That's super cool. And it's such an advance over, you know, what we do in the oil industry, which is drilling down and then having to pull the whole thing up and then drill down again and pull the whole thing up. So it sounds like it really allows us to do this much needed exploration.
0: Yeah, it's definitely been an advantage that scientific ocean drilling has come up with to optimize the time we're out there to collect as much core, to understand the Earth system.
1: So, you know, when I hear oil and gas, and this is probably true for our listeners too, I get a little concerned um, because, you know, we don't want the evil oil companies coming in here and, and, you know, taking our water and exploiting the environment. This is this is not that though. Can you explain that how oil and gas how that industry is is involved?
0: Yeah, so that industry I think is involved or can be involved in a couple of different ways that are beneficial and not in the in the mind sense of taking over the resource and treating it like a commodity like they do with oil and gas. So there are some energy companies that are trying to minimize their water footprint. And so one way they could be involved would be funding research like the research I'm doing or that my colleagues is doing to better understand this resource. So they're completely decoupled from how the resource is used or understood. They're just using this as a way to better understand water resources that other people could use to offset the company's water footprint. That's a very indirect way they could be involved. A more direct way they could be involved would be to actively be involved in understanding this resource and potentially producing it but rather than using the fresh water that, that you need and I need and all the listeners need to live and thrive, they could be using water that's not salt water and not fresh water. So something that's in between maybe a, a lower salinity of like 10 parts per thousand or 15 parts per thousand for water that they could use in some of their industrial practices instead of the fresh water that they're using today. And so what they could do is actually use less fresh water and use partly salty water for some of their activities, including oil and gas recovery or cleaning of equipment or recharging systems that have been depleted after they produce oil and gas. So, what they'd be doing is not using the fresh water that they're using in active practice today, but use fresher than seawater that they're collecting out of these offshore resources. And then that fresh water that they're not using anymore could be used for traditional uses like running our infrastructure in a city.
1: So, by using this offshore water, which is a little bit more salty, that means they don't have to use water on land, the fresh water on land. And so we have more available, right, for growing food, for for people, for the environment on land. Exactly right. So is this funded by National Science Foundation or how are you getting this funded?
0: Yeah, so we've primarily been funded through the National Science Foundation through different grants to do forward modeling or going out and collecting some, some field data, such as the electromagnetic data or the seismic data that we've been used to image it. And then all of the scientific ocean drilling that has been done through, from the 1970s was funded by the U.S. government. Other anecdotal data have come through the International Ocean Discovery Program, which is partially funded by the National Science Foundation on the U.S. side but also a consortium of European countries, New Zealand, Australia, Korea, Brazil, Japan, and India and China all kick in some money too. And they've helped us collect some of these samples that we've used to understand these freshwater systems. But again, I'd like to emphasize all of these drilling projects that we've done to date had a different primary interest and not the primary interest being the groundwater. And so we're trying to bring the groundwater to the forefront now as the primary reason we got to do this, this science, so we can understand better how these systems are connected.
1: So that that leads to, to questions of of governance, and that's something that I think about with groundwater on land. So you know, one obvious question that comes to mind is like, who's let's take the one in New Jersey, like who who owns that? Yes, in the U.S. at least, we have not produced offshore re- freshwater. There
0: have been some cases um, in Europe where they've intentionally produced offshore freshwater. But we haven't done it. So we haven't had an experience where we've had to discuss the ownership. But the same thing on land occurs, right? I live in Colorado. The Colorado River starts here. That water gets distributed over all those states to the Southwest, eventually making its way to Mexico. So, you know, there's always this big question of who owns the water, who owns the water rights, who gets how much. A colleague who I've talked to a lot about this is, is a lawyer. So her name is Renee Martin Nagel. And so she's been looking at different economic and management models and ownership models, and basically been using the oil and gas model as the preferred method to do this. So for those who are not familiar with this, the U.S. cuts offshore land into chunks of land. Uh, They call them blocks. They have these lease sales. People can lease that land to go out there and produce the oil and gas beneath it. Her idea is to use a similar model for offshore water governance. So we have Uh, the land that the states owned so far offshore, and then we go into U.S. territorial waters or the extended continental shelf on who would own the rights to access that water. And then basically there'd be some rules about how close you can get to those boundaries and how much you can produce. And there would have to be a governing body that looked over and approved everybody's plans to make sure that this production on one block wasn't affecting production on another block or how people would, would work together. But again, we can borrow existing um, legal pros and legal approaches and adapt them for, for water.
1: So, so much stuff I've never thought about before. I, I have enough difficulty keeping straight all of the policies and everything that's happening with groundwater and water in general on land. Thinking about it offshore, just it just hurts my brain. If you could wave a magic wand, how could this drilling technology help us solve our climate-related water issues. Yeah, it's a, that's a. This is your magic wand. This is your magic wand moment, Brandon. Well, I think if I could, if I could wave my
0: magic wand and do anything that I wanted, I just really sort of this this global awareness that we are now looking in non-traditional out-of-the-box places to find fresh water. And this is truly a need and everybody needs to contribute. We need to think about how we can conserve water in every part of our life. We're, We're fortunate enough to now get this water from offshore New England. Well, maybe that means that I can be more proactive in my home life and think about better ways to manage my water at home, whether it be turning the shower off when I'm washing my hair, or changing my front yard to be xeriscape, so it's natural flowers versus something that has to be watered. And so people really realize that we're going to extreme lengths to give us fresh water. We should be aware of that and, and responsive of it and change our behaviors in ways that can still keep us happy.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today, Brandon. It was great chatting with you.
0: It was great chatting with you, Jay. Thank you very much for this opportunity.
1: Brandon Dugan is the Associate Department Head and Baker Hughes Chair for the Department of Geophysics at the Colorado School of Mines.
2: All right, it's time for Ask Jay.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so hello, Jay, good to see you again.
1: Great to see you, Aaron.
2: <laughs> Thanks. So we have to let our listeners know that at the time we're talking, it's mid-September, the school year has just begun, things are busy, And I feel like you know I'd be remiss if we didn't say also what's going on right now in the world of water with the flooding in Pakistan. I was reading an article from the New York Times that was published yesterday, so again, mid-September, and it was saying that so far around 1,500 people have died and more than 33 million have been displaced. You know, the pictures, the videos, it's catastrophic. The devastation is so vast. And I think our listeners are probably curious and saddened by it as well and wondering, you know, how could this have happened from a water science perspective and climate change, too? Could you just speak a little to that for us?
1: Yeah, I think, unfortunately, Pakistan found itself in the crosshairs of climate change. This is completely climate change and human driven. So what's happening there is uh, a couple of things. One is um, increased global warming, so faster glacial melting. Uh, which is triggering mm. triggering floods, but also a stronger monsoon season. Mm. And so the combination of those two things has led to these really incredible floods. And as you said, tens of millions, like 33 million people displaced. Uh, you know, that's real climate displacement. I don't know, over $10 billion. I've, I've seen different estimates mm-hmm. of that number. U.S. in terms of damage, 1,500 uh, dead. Um wow. You know, sadly, I don't know how we prepare for these sorts of events in the future, but we need to figure it out because Mm. they're becoming more frequent.
2: Yeah, and I was kind of thinking a little bit about the conversation you had with Virginia back in episode one about the famine early warning system because I was looking at some photos of the flooding and satellite imagery, and it was wild to see that difference, the before and after, but just thinking about, you know, technology can show us what's happening, but in some ways, it can't really prevent catastrophic disasters such as this at this scale, I suppose. Well, you know, let's think
1: about what it would take to actually do that warning. So sure, we could keep track of melting glaciers, and we know it was an excessively hot summer, and so perhaps we could have predicted uh, some of the flooding. Mm -hmm. We don't do a great job at the short-term weather prediction, so in medium-term weather prediction, Mm -hmm. so that would have been a little bit more difficult. But we did know in a macro sense that the monsoon was stronger this year. But, you know, there's a real social side to it, and that is to get people to move in advance, mm. right? In advance of, like, you have to communicate that this is happening, that people have to believe you, and then they have to have somewhere to go. And so those are all things that are really, really a challenge and really you know, get to the social side of, of climate change. People don't really want to be – they don't want to have their livelihoods disrupted – They want a more accurate prediction like we can do with, say, a hurricane. You can see the image coming towards, you know, making landfall, you know, towards your coastal area. You can see it, right, Mm -hmm. Um, and so you'll get out of the way. This is more subtle. Like glaciers melting? Like Mm -hmm. how do I know that it's going to speed up? So it's, it's, it's really a challenge.
2: Right, right, and a privilege to be able to leave as well in time. Yeah, that's right. Good point. You know, we actually have a first Ask Jay listener question for you that's about this issue exactly. Not Pakistan specifically, but just avoiding climate disaster in a way. So I'm going to read this question. This is from a listener named Nicholas, and he is in Portugal. So he says, Hello, this message is for Jay. My name is Nicholas, and I recently watched your part on the DW doc on YouTube. I currently live in Portugal and hoping to buy land soon to build an off-grid home and I'm trying to find out where would be the best place to do so in Portugal or Europe. I was curious if you have any advice. I'm hoping to build a home and don't want to have to worry about fires or no water. I'm sure everywhere will start having more problems, just trying to find less risky areas than others. I appreciate any help or advice, thank you.
1: Well, Nicholas, that's a that's a great question. And um, I'll tell you what, when I moved up here to Saskatoon from Southern California, um, I thought I was going to be avoiding things like water scarcity and drought and and fires, but that turned out not to be the case. Um, and so, when we look at our satellite data, and you know, I'm in the the world of global climate change, every place is impacted in in some way. And across Europe right now, you know, the entire region is in is in pretty rough shape more generally i think if you move north you have uh more of an opportunity for it to be cooler i think that uh, in general precipitation has been increasing as you move to northern europe with the exception of a lot of the last few years so my take home message is really you know think about your family and uh as i'm you know i do myself all the time and think about you know your your daily life and and the people around you Um, There was an interesting story recently about that people tend to move for climate and tend to move for family reasons and not for climate change. Mm. So anyway, think about what's really important to you. And if climate is really important to you, then, you know, moving north uh, is, is probably a good way to
2: go. I mean, you probably get this question a lot, don't you, Jay?
1: I do. I get this question all the time and, you know, if we're, if we're talking about the United States or Canada, moving north, the northern half of the United States and Canada tend to have, uh, more water than, um, than the southern part of the United States. Um, the challenge becomes as we move forward, you know, deeper and deeper into the throes of climate change. How is that rainfall being delivered? What's the variability? What's the changing frequency of intense storms? So that's another thing for you to look at, Nicholas, is if you pick a region, I don't know, you know, northern France or, you know, going up even even more north to, I don't know, Norway or Sweden or something. Um look at the the change in the in the variability. Is there an increasing frequency of flooding and, and what are those regions doing to mitigate that?
2: Awesome. Well, thank you, Jay, and thank you to Nicholas for writing in with that question. So if you're like Nicholas and you have a question for Jay or a question about anything we've covered on the show so far or something you'd like to hear, please send us an email at ideas at whataboutwater.org, and members of our team will sift through those. If you'd like to try doing it in an audio message, you can do that as well. Just attach that to your email and keep an ear out. And again, that email is ideas at whataboutwater.org. Thank you so much, Jay. It was good to see you.
1: Thanks so much. Great to see you too, Erin. Bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of What About Water? We record and produce this podcast on Treaty 6 Territory, the homeland of First Nations and Métis people. What About Water is a collaboration between the Walrus Lab and the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. This podcast is a production of Cascade Communications. Our audio engineer is Wayne Giesbrecht, Our producer is Aaron Stevens. Our fact checker is Taysha Garvey. The crew at GIWS is Mark Ferguson, Sean Ahmed, Fred Reben, Andrea Rowe, and Jesse Widow. I'm Jay Famiglietti. Thanks for listening.